0: The text for Pastor John's message this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 through chapter 5, verse 5. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. And everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God?
1: Suppose that you have a Christian friend who you think is doing something wrong, at least wrong as far as you can judge from Scripture. How would you answer if he said in response to your admonition, I know that it's not what the Bible specifically commands, but I think it is the most loving thing. And since love is the highest ethical norm in Scripture, therefore, I think what I'm doing is right. That kind of reasoning is very widespread among Christians today. It's a kind of catchphrase ethics, I call it. You go into the Scriptures, you find a catchphrase like justice. Peace, love, kingdom of God. You draw it out. You fill it up with the meaning of your agenda. You turn it back on Scripture and you cancel out specific commands with it. In other words, a principle that has biblical sanction is taken out, but the detailed contours of the principle that are provided by the specific commands of Scripture, are neglected or ignored, and in their place are put your own special agenda or your social agenda. And then with that norm now, you go back to the Scriptures and you sift out the commands that fit and the commands that don't. It's an easy mistake to make because... We do have to function with principles often. The Bible doesn't begin to address every moral dilemma you face from day to day. Not in any particular terms. You have to take principles often and apply them to situations that seem quite different from what the Bible was talking about. But it seems to me that what's happening today in all kinds of moral issues is that in the name of certain biblical principles, the actual commands of Scripture, the actual specific teachings of the Bible on certain matters are simply being rejected. In other words, principles are being taken over from the Bible. The actual content of those principles given by the more detailed examples of Scripture are not accepted, but rather the principle is fleshed out by other things. And I want to give some examples in a few minutes. But first, let's go to the text and see whether or not this passage of Scripture addresses this issue as clearly as I think it does. We're going to skip over very quickly verses 20, 21 of chapter 4, and verse 1 of chapter 5. Because this is old material. But let me sum it up for you as, as best I see it. Verse 20 is a negative statement if you say that you love God and you Hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't really love God. We've seen that before. There's nothing new there. Verse 21 puts the same thing in a positive light. He who loves God should love his brother. And verse 1 of chapter 5 says the same thing ultimately. It says that if you love the parent, that is the one who begets children, then you will most definitely love the children. So the point of verses 20 through verse 1 of chapter 5 is an old point, namely that the test of the genuineness of your love to God is whether you love his children, whether you love your fellow believers or not. That's what this book has been about all the way through. But now let's come to verses two to three, because here something is startlingly new. Nowhere before in this letter have we seen anything like this. Verse two, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, that's a brand new issue. It is so different, we are prone to say, "This." I must have read it wrong. I've got to go back and read this. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. He got it backwards. He didn't mean to say that. Really, he meant to say, by this we know that we love God when we love the children of God. Right? That's what this book is about. Testing your love to God by whether you love people. That's not what he says. The new thing here is that John is telling us you can also get deceived about whether you're loving people. You may think you're loving people, and you're not loving people. How can you know if you're loving people? That's what verse 2 is about. By this, we know... That we're loving people. How? When we love God and keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now this is worth thinking about. This is something very, very new. What is the test? So that you can have a strong assurance in your conscience that when you do something for somebody, you're not deceiving yourself. But that it's really... Love. I think the test that John gives would go something like this. By this we know that we love the children of God. And then he says, when we love God, but he defines love for God in two ways so that we can get a handle on it and use it as a test. Namely, when we keep God's commandments, and second, when we don't experience those commandments as... Burdensome. So the test that you can give to yourself to say whether or not you're really loving other people when you try to love other people is do the commandments of God govern my relationship and are they burdensome to me? And if you pass those two tests, then you can say, now I know I'm loving other people. Let's take these two halves of the test and and think about them, look at them together. First, he says that we know we love the children of God when we keep God's commandments. Now, this is John's answer, I think, to the question that I raised at the beginning. What about people who take the catchword love? out of the Bible and say, that's the highest ethical norm. That's what the Bible is teaching. And then they turn around with it and they cancel out one command after the other from the Bible using the norm as the canceling device. Let's take some examples. Many today will argue that the loving thing to say to a practicing homosexual is not that homosexual activity is sin, but that homosexual promiscuity is sin. Therefore, quit playing around and find one homosexual partner and be faithful, for that's the way of love. And the highest ethical norm in the Bible is love. And this is the way evangelicals talk today, many John would say that when you take the ethical norm of love and turn around with it and cancel out Romans 1 which teaches that homosexual activity is contrary to nature and brings the judgment of God upon people you are not acting in love by this we know that we love homosexuals when we keep the commandments of God in that relationship. Another example church discipline. If a church member is involved in open and persistent and unrepented sin, what will love dictate? Having pled with a person privately, having pled with a person in group, having pled with a person from the church, and the person remains unrepentant and resolute in the intention to follow through with this sin, will we obey the commandment to God in Matthew 18.17 to exclude the person from our fellowship? Or will we do the catchword kind of ethic and take out the word of love, fill it up with our emotional inclinations, and turn and say, that that wouldn't work. That would do more harm. That's not the loving thing. And cancel it out. Third example. Are there biblically sanctioned differences between the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church? Here the catchwords vary. Some take the idea of equality from Galatians 3.28. Some take the idea of personhood from Genesis one twenty-seven. Some take the idea of giftedness from 1 Corinthians 12. Some take the idea of love. And the effect of the catchword methodology throughout the feminist movement is to cancel out Ephesians 5 and to cancel out 1 Timothy 2. When the scripture says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, when the scripture teaches that there is a role distinction between husbands and wives modeled after the role distinction between the church and Christ. The typical feminist response is that contradicts personhood, that contradicts equality that contradicts giftedness, that contradicts love. Cancel it. Millions. Most evangelicals today follow that methodology. And it's given some semblance of scholarly credence with arguments that cannot stand close examination. John would say, If you want to know whether or not you have loving ideas about the way a husband and wife should relate to each other, ask yourself, are you keeping the commandments of God in relationships like that? One final example. I was listening to the radio on the way home from the hospital on Wednesday. And I heard a radio authority, not James Dobson, for whom I have the highest regard, advising a young mother who called in on the radio show to say, my two-and-a-half-year-old son says no when I tell him to put his arm in his sleeve. What should I do? And the radio authority... In fact, she said, I know I'm not supposed to reprimand him and, and tell him no is wrong. What should I say? He said, well, you're absolutely right about that. You should not discipline him and reprimand him. Here's what you should try. Try telling him a story. And when you've diverted his attention, slip his arm in the in, in sleep. Now, I turn off the radio and started thinking about my sermon Radio, television, books, magazines, newspapers, cassette tapes, videos. Everybody's got an idea of how you should love your children. And again and again, principles like respect, personhood, love, are used to cancel out the commands of God. Like, he who spares the rod hates his son But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not set your heart on his destruction. If you want to know whether you are loving your children, according to 1 John 5, 2, you will ask the question, do I relate to my children according to the commandments of God? No matter what anybody else says. Well, all of these illustrations, which could be multiplied again and again, are simply meant to show this. John wants to stress the point. You can't talk about love at the horizontal interpersonal level when you leave God and his commandments out of account. Just can't do it. Instead, you can know if you love the children of God by whether you will love God and obey his commandments. Now, let's look at the second part of the test. When John says that you can know that you are really loving the children of God, when you love God, he means not only when you keep his commandments, but also when his commandments are not burdensome. See that in verse 3? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Burdensome. The love for God that enables you to know in a relationship whether you're loving another person is a an experience of God that has two effects. It causes you to submit to the commandments of God in that relationship, and it causes you to do so gladly, not. Burdensomely. Christianity is not a gutted out religion. Day in and day out, hacking through these horrible commands of God. Some's wrong if that's your life. So our final consideration this morning is the question, how can I get to be the kind of person For whom the commands of God aren't a burden, but a easy yoke, light burden? Well, the answer is right here in verse 4 and 5. And it says, commandments of God are not a burden because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now notice verse 4. There are two things that overcome the world. That which is born of God and your faith. And we've seen again and again in this book how those two things are related. So the, the sequence of event would go like this. Almighty God, by His Holy Spirit, quickens the heart of a fallen and dead person and causes that person to be born anew. The first twitch of life in the new child of God is to believe in the Son, to see for the first time how delectable are the promises of God. And when faith is put in Jesus Christ and all His good promises for us, the effect is that the world is toppled in its power. We conquer, we overcome the world and the effect of overcoming the world is that the commandments of God are no longer a burden. Now let's get inside this and just see how this works for just a minute. What's the connection between the burdensomeness of the commands of God and overcoming the world? Because verse 4 says, if you overcome the world, they're not burdensome. Here's the way I understand it. It seems to be that... uh, there's a twofold thing at work here. The world and your heart conspire to make the commandments hard to keep. The world says, You're going to be a lot happier if you fudge on your tax return and have a little extra money to get an extra week's vacation. A lot happier than if you be honest. The world says, Look the rest of your life's going to be hell if you stay in this marriage. So just get on with the divorce and and get some freedom and and it'll be better. The world says to a single person continence is old hat. It's for the birds. And you are denying yourself a god-given inclination and pleasure and you're making your life crazy, miserable. The world says to witness to a colleague, it's so... I mean, you get egg on your face and Christians are just corny and all religion is the last thing anybody thinks about in this office. So the world is making the commandments of God very burdensome. Now, you put put over against that your heart, which says... Amen, world. Amen, world. Amen, world. That's right on. And you are dead. They are so heavy. The commandments of God, you look over at the commandments of God, and they are so heavy. You never carry them. Now, what's the way out of that situation? According to verse 4, the way out is to be born again. That which is born of God conquers the world through faith. How does that work? God comes into this heart that so say, amen, amen, world, right on. I see those pleasures you're holding out to me. That's what I want. This is just a drag, what Christ offers. And all of a sudden, God, by his Holy Spirit, just blasts the shades off your eyes. And you look and you see the most magnificent person in the world, Jesus Christ. You see the most magnificent promises imaginable no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. I will work everything in your life together for your eternal good. I am for you and not against you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And all of a sudden, the beauty of fellowship with God and the hope of eternal glory in God just masters you. And then you look back to these little mud pies that the world is offering you, And they've lost their power. You conquer the world by believing Jesus is who He said He is. And the joys He offers are what He says they are. Are, and that heaven is as long as He says it is and as glorious as He says it is and that the sweetness of knowing Almighty God in this life and having fellowship with Him is as sweet and as deep and as wonderful and as satisfying as He says it is. Faith is the victory that overcomes the power of the world. And when it overcomes the world, God's admonitions to you aren't burdensome anymore. He's your Father. He's your Doctor. He loves you. He knows what makes you well. He knows what will make you whole, happy, eternal, escaping from all the miseries of life and eternity. And you're the winner. So I want to close this morning with an invitation to you. This book, especially this text, holds out to things that are very, very precious, holds out them, holds them out to you. If you want to know that you love other people, really know that you love other people and not just deceive yourself. If you want to have the power to obey the commandments of God, if you want this morning to be a loving person and not to have that be a burden, but a joy. And if you want to overcome the deceptive power of the world, then consider this morning. Consider the infinitely surpassing value of the promises of God. I mean, just be rational, be reasonable. Just stop and ponder the relationship between a few years on this earth and then eternity and its implications. Stop and ponder what it means for God to say, I am God, I threw the worlds into existence, and I am for you. And will work for your good in every circumstance. And then to hear the world say, uh, well, I can give you some pleasure tomorrow night. and Leave you sunk in despair and guilt the next morning. Just compare, be reasonable. Let the Holy Spirit open the eyes of your hearts to what makes sense in the world. And then close with Christ. Unburden yourself to Christ. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke of commandments upon you and learn from me, because my yoke is light and easy. It isn't heavy. I have power for you and an endless future of glory. O Lord, I pray that any who is here in this hour who have not found your yoke to be easy or your commandments to be light will accept in this very moment by the power of your Holy Spirit the invitation to come home to joy. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen.